Welcome to Mind Reading Experts in Conversation podcast series. This project explores the patient experience through the prism of literature and personal narrative to inform self-care, patient-centered care and practice as well as humanities research. Do doctors and patients speak the same language and how can we use narrative to bridge the evident gaps? These are the questions that animate the work. Mind reading began as a collaboration between UCD Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Diseases of Modern Life project at Oxford University and the University of Birmingham, and expanded to include colleagues across the UK and Ireland and the School of English Drama and Film at UCD. Our intended activities comprise a series of explorations around the central theme of literature and mental health and function as independent events, but are brought together by their intent to explore the best ways of drawing on the insights of historical and literary research in contemporary medical practice in the field of mental health particularly. This podcast series, Experts in Conversation, brings together some of the key themes of the 2020 conference, which we postponed due to COVID-19, and is brought to you by the Humanities Institute at UCD and RCPI Archives. For this final session of Words to Live by Hearing the Stories of Dementia from the podcast series, Mind Reading Experts in Conversation, brings together all of the panellists from today's episode to discuss some of the commonalities and themes arising out of their various presentations. I'm Dr. Claire Hayes-Brady of the School of English Drama and Film in UCD, and I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, a consultant in liaison child and adolescent psychiatry at Children's University Hospital, Temple Street, and an associate professor at UCD School of Medicine, along with Dr. Danielle Petherbridge, Des O'Neill, Clodagh Whelan, Kevin Quaid, and Dr. Wendy Mitchell. There's so much to pick up on and so much, so much rich discussion here. I'm very excited. So one of the things that I, I really, um, I'm going to open this up now to, to a fuller discussion. And I'm joined, um, I'm joined also by um, Dr. Elizabeth Barrett, who is a consultant and liaison child and adolescent psychiatry in Children's University Hospital, Temple Street, and an associate professor at UCD. Um, and we're going to bring the whole panel um, together to, to talk through some of the many threads of commonality um, there. I wanted to pick up on one of the very last things, Danielle, that you were saying, this idea of recognition, um, this idea of, of that, that, that personhood evolves from and is related to being recognized by other people. And that really struck me in relation to something that Des said. Des, when you were talking about... Um, uh, Zola's experiment and, and living in a wheelchair and that the change in the obvious change in recognition that he experienced in that situation and to, to Kevin and Wendy you both mentioned the ways that you were addressed and the identities that were given to you thrust upon you in some ways in around the diagnosis around the clinical procedure I know that Wendy that the idea of a sufferer of dementia dementia is a particular a particular bugbear for, for you. And Kevin, I know that you were very struck by, and I'm, I'm interested in the relationship that you, you and Helena went in as husband and wife and emerged as patient and carer. And can you talk a little bit, if you would, about how you would change that language? Yeah, um, I did say that, and it was, uh, was it last year, Claudia, we were doing a presentation, Dr. Laura Philby and myself on PPI, and I read it and I said, patient, public involvement. And I said, just, I said to Laura, I said, you know, I said, that word is wrong. And I mean, sometimes we can get hooked up on words, but there's 50, there was 52 weeks in the year previous, and there was only two weeks that year I was a patient. That's why I was not, when I was in hospital. Mm -hmm. Every other time of the year, I'm a, I'm a person. Yes. And I mean, I'd be the first to give out a word, oh, for God's sake, you know, because <laughs> antics with words, but... You know, you know, they they really, they really and truly do matter. Yes. 
And like that day, we genuinely did feel coming out that our lives had changed forever. And we were, look, my neurologist has turned out to be a good friend of mine um, and can't do enough for me. But I would probably say the day I was diagnosed was not her strongest day with us as a couple. Um, That is exactly how we felt when we came out into the car, that you're gone from my wife and you're not my carer. Yeah. And it took a good six months before we could cope with it. And the hardest thing for Helena to cope with was she might ring her sister in Listowel this morning, which is an hour away, and say, Francis would say, how's Kevin? He, he is still in bed. He had a terrible night. He is very ill. Francis would sit in her car without telling Helena, arrive over, and where's Kevin? He's outside cutting the lawn. Sure. And Helena felt for a long time that people were thinking that she was making it up, that she was a liar. Mm-hmm. But it, was, it wasn't Helena who was making up the lie. It wasn't Kevin that was making up the lie. It was Louis that was making a liar out of one of us. Yeah. Because that, that my disease, like, is, I call it the vampire disease. It, it's, a, it's a night, it really shines through. Last night, I, I beat a man to death. Now, I had a meeting this morning at 9 o'clock. And in order to get that image and get that, world out of my head i was up at seven and had a couple of cups of tea and i watched a bit of iron dm and i had my ball of porridge and, and it took me an hour to come from that world into this world yeah. to look forward to this morning and it's like it's like getting the child ready for school i had to get my brain ready for my brain ready for today and that's a different form of dementia to, yes. to other types of dementia yes. And it sounds like talking about what your, your wife calling her sister and the change between when she when when Helena speaks to her and when she arrives that it's not that the language is wrong it's that it, there isn't enough in it. No, that it's, and, and there's another subject I brought to yesterday, and because of the panel that's here, and because of, because um, of the doctors and professors and everything, I don't mind saying it. Um, Robin Williams committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Not because he wanted to commit suicide. He committed suicide because he had Louis body dementia and he did not know it. Yeah. The only difference between Robin Williams and Kevin Quaid is Robin, where Robin Williams succeeded, I failed. When I tried suicide, the belt broke. Oh my wasn't that I thought about it. I had the belt nailed into the rafter and the belt broke. I often say but for being a, but for being a, a cheap fella, if I bought a real leather belt, okay. I found me hanging. Oh my goodness! But there have been nights as late as three weeks ago, when I woke on the Monday morning, and I said to Helena, "If I did not know what was causing yeah. this at night, I would have no problem in it. Yeah. But now I know that I, if I speak to my wife." If I give it the hour, if I have the cup of tea, yeah. I didn't realize this is not Kevin Quaid. Kevin has Louis body disease, yeah. disease and that's what's causing it. And, and so that is keeping me alive. And so in some ways, in your experience, having the word to say 
this is what is happening to me, this is what is causing it, yes. has been really, really important. Wendy, can I can I come to you on that on that point? And mm-hmm. I, I, as I say, I'm interested in how you would change the language that you experience, mm-hmm. how important it's been for you. The, the psychological effect of words and body language should never be underestimated by any healthcare profession mm-hmm. because we we look to them as the experts. And if they're looking sad or their demeanor is right. sad or, um, and their language is negative, then we believe them because yes. we know nothing else. They're the expert. Yes. So they have to realize the impact they have on the person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I also think that. You know, when I got diagnosed, so did my daughters. So the whole family needs that reassurance, that hope. Yes. We all need knowledge and support. And it's the knowledge that makes or breaks us. Mm -hmm. So that first initial diagnosis is what makes or breaks you. Yes. And some people come through it, like myself and Kevin, but other people just don't know where to go. Yeah. And my, my phrase is, we don't know what we don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I, Des, can I bring that to you as, as, the, as the clinician here with experience in this area? You were very clear in your presentation that you avoid negativity, you avoid what you called apocalyptic language, which I think was a really, really useful term for it. And I'm struck that you all have mentioned, every speaker has mentioned the importance of the support network, the family, the loved ones, those who go on the journey along with the person with the diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach it as a clinician, Des? Sure, yeah. Well, the first thing is we generally uh, run through uh, the kind of breaking bad news framework, which is around making sure somebody isn't deeply depressed, mm-hmm. uh, developing a sense of a, a kind of making sure it's a, it's a reasonably long consultation, certainly, if things become apparent. Uh, I think it's also really important how we stage it. So um, I still get relatives who are kind of surprised when I bring the person in on their own, mm-hmm. always, doesn't matter how severe it may be. And indeed, the person coming often, um, particularly in the more severe stages, perhaps um, may feel they're being dragged there. And the first Mm. thing I say to them is, you're in charge here. If you want to stop right now, we stop right now. Mm -hmm. And actually, nearly always, because they feel in charge again, uh, it it continues. And the other thing is, I always say when I'm taking the collateral history, and this is what we try and train our trainees to do, we ask the permission of the person affected. Right. Who would you like us to talk to? Occasionally they say, we don't want you to talk to anybody. And that's okay because we've actually picked up quite a bit during that session. Um, And then we say, we can share that information with you in the room. Are you outside the room and discuss with you afterwards? If you're in the room, uh, you hear what's going on. Although with with your forgetfulness, you may not be aware of it. You might find it distressing. But either event, it's, it's your choice. Yeah. So I think empowering the person who comes is, is, is so there's a, a preload. Yeah. Then when it comes, there's a very big literature on, on, on the relatively, for all of us when we become patients, uh, that we only absorb X percent of what's yes. happening, you know, and indeed may misinterpret or whatever else. 
So I always um, uh, phrase it around, um, uh, you try and gauge a bit what does the person themselves know, or what do they think, uh, and then you outline it. And I think one of the ways I outline it, because very often I can see the relative going, you know, and I say, well, look, there's a couple of reasons why this is important, uh, both dignity and everything else. And mm -hmm. I said, the other thing is, by and large, we often try a medication, the little bit of paper in it has written on it, Alzheimer's disease. So you're better to learn, have a chat with me about it than learning it from a bit of paper sure. uh, in your living room. And it may impact on things like driving and other sorts of things and may impact on, you know, future planning, a whole range of things. Then we, we know COVID has affected it somewhat, but we have a what, what everywhere should have, and I think this is something we are really trying to promote, they should have a post-diagnostic counselling service. Yeah. We have advanced nurse practitioners who are very expert in this uh, area here. We also run a course, we have a, a series of brochures, mm. we link people into uh, the ASI, uh, and you know, we, 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 we talk through uh, these, these elements and the Alzheimer Cafe, those sort of things. Yes. Now, there's, there's a famous old phrase that I remember hearing 30 years ago is when you see one person with Alzheimer's disease, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease. So everybody's very different. They're very different about the ways they um, they want knowledge. Some people mm -hmm. want everything. Some people say, I'm happy to take it as it comes. Yes. So it's about trying to, to, to gauge what the person who's come to you with the condition yes. is the person who should be the pace setter yeah. uh, in, in whatever. So that might sound a bit idealistic, but it, but it, it's it is what we're trying to generate as 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 a standard. And then once we've established where we're going with people, we often do a thing called a further review at GP discretion. Um, mm. uh, and we we hold on to people where there's clearly issues around struggles or things around driving on that. Um, and I do try again. I keep trying to emphasize to people the importance of, of, of the positive things you can yes. do. And it troubles me a bit in healthcare is we're still deficit oriented in how we measure. Yeah. And one of the things I like is a thing called the pleasant event schedule, which is what are the things you like doing and how can we then use that as a, as a, as a template? Yes. Uh, Yes, and that very much ties in, Kevin, with your immediate advice at the beginning, doesn't it? Sort of to, to say, what are the things that you have wanted to do? And that term deficit oriented is, is very useful. And I think it picks up on something that both Wendy and Kevin said, which was to flip the conversation. Mm. And I suppose one of the questions that arises is, you know, Clodagh, at the beginning, you gave um, you gave some figures around the number of the number of people living with dementia in Ireland and, and how that's expected to rise. And there's a tension, it seems to me, there between the, the desire to, to centre the person in each case, in each individual case, and how you go about training and equipping clinicians to do that. Um, because obviously they can't all meet every individual person living with a diagnosis. So to what extent, and this is an open, an open question, to what extent and how can we use the stories that that, that people like Wendy and Kevin have written um, in equipping clinicians through, through education and training, through ongoing practice, do you think, to, to really drive home and really enhance that, that person-centered care, that person-centered experience, do you think? So Wendy, I can see, wants to speak straight away. Well, the medics, they... You know, so much is learned through their academia, their, 
books, the, the practicalities of medicine, the practicalities of diagnosis, which, you know, they have to learn. But the, the flip side of that is the reality of that disease, the real stories of that disease. And if somehow the two can be combined in their learning, then it's a win-win situation because they have that, that gel of academic mm -hmm. understanding of how the body works, but also how it can affect people in different ways yes. and how their position in our lives can affect us in yes. a way that they might not have thought of. One of the main questions around patient-centered care is that there is a need, it's not only individual, of course, just as Danielle was saying in her presentation, that there's an enormous need for community support and social support. And Danielle, if I could come to you about that for a moment, in your experience, how does the, the work that you're doing, how does that help to structure an understanding of that community embeddedness, that social embeddedness of the subject that you talked about? Yes, it's several ways. I draw a lot on the notion of vulnerability, that as human beings, we're all vulnerable. Doesn't matter what part of the life cycle, we're actually all vulnerable. And I think if we remember that, then it's, it's, I think it's much easier to get past this situation where people sort of somehow stigmatise somebody that's diagnosed with an illness. Um, and a lot of that resp responsivity or that reaction is often because it makes them feel very vulnerable. So family members or, or carers often also feel vulnerable. And I have drawn on, for example, the um, biography written about Iris Murdoch mm, by yes. John Bailey, her, yeah. her partner. And there's some interesting pieces in that biography where he describes those kinds of feelings and, and in fact, describes Iris Murdoch herself in quite negative terms mm. Uh, mm. and I, I find that quite interesting because uh, I think that is something that you know needs to be addressed that this not only ex affects the person themselves but their relations with others and obviously those relations are crucially important because mm. um, it's it's not only in terms of support and care but it is in terms of that we are relational beings so yeah. we require those people around us um, so we do need to think about ways that we can structure that into support, yes, um, support for families, but also particular kinds of care as well in terms of those sorts of structures. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting that you've also um, family members, for example, also feel vulnerable. And I mentioned um, the, the, the Iris Murdoch uh, biography. Mm. There's one point in which John Bailey mentions that, um, you know, he has to kind of reduce himself to the same sort of feeling of vulnerability to be able to communicate in that sense and be able to really understand. Uh, and, yeah. And I wanted, I, I, I remember that the, the, that, that, that part of, of the biography of the Iris Murdoch biography and, and sort of representing her as quite challenging. And that, that picks up on something, Clodagh, that, that you had mentioned to me, which is a question for everybody, but I think a question to, to Des initially. Um, one of the difficulties or tensions around these stories that we hear they're so important and 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 vital and useful but those of us beyond the story those of us reading the story or hearing the story for example we do love a bit of sensationalization 
you know, we do love a dramatic kind of a weepy tale. And so the question is, how do we avoid sensationalizing and sort of apocalypticizing, I don't know if that's a word, um, these, these narratives for those of us who aren't living with it, aren't experiencing um, this illness? And, and how important is that as well? I mean, what's the, what's the balance? Clodagh, this is a question that you raised. So if you want to follow up before I turn it over to Des, that, that's, go ahead. I think it's really important because I think there, there, there is such value and importance in listening to people and to tell their story. And I was struck what Des was saying about the, the play he had looked at, the film, that there was, that they were quite focusing on the negative aspects of living with dementia. Mm -hmm. And I would see that the media does often focus on the sensational aspect, the, the, the scariness of the disease, mm -hmm. the big headline, and that there is a risk without the right support for the person that they become a kind of a, a news story yeah. or a, a, a sensational figure for our entertainment yes. rather than our learning. And I think in a way it's kind of connected to the, the public discourse and narrative on dementia, which is, you know, the demographic burden, a ticking time bomb. What are we going to do with all these older people? What are we going to do about everyone who's developing dementia? So the public discourse mm -hmm. is predominantly negative. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the story of the person living with dementia and their struggles sometimes can be tacked onto that negative sensationalist mm -hmm. approach. So it's, it's hard to maintain an, an authenticity Yes. about the lived experience and the story within that, I think. And I was I was kind of prompted when when Des was saying about those those films and 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 um, plays that had seemed to quite sensationalize the sure. story. Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, I think sometimes we, we, we forget that things move on and we make progress. So I think one of the positive things was the Understanding Together uh, campaign, uh, which, you know, portrayed people to the outside world. And, and again, I think it's really important not to um, isolate um, uh, dementia disorders from other areas. I do, did a lot of stroke work and stroke was a deeply embarrassing subject until two major, we had lots of major figures in public life come through, but don't breathe a word, I've had it. And two heroes that came out of this was, so So people coming out with narratives are important. Uh, Mick Doyle, the former Ireland rugby coach, but also UCD academic, uh, very loved for his, his radio um, uh, uh, inputs on, on words, uh, uh, especially how Irish use English, Terry Dolan yes. came out as the champion uh, to open this out. But from our point of view as, as academics, researchers, scholars, and also educators, I think it's important that we put a very critical slant and an awareness uh, on, these, on these narratives, pointing out the ones that seem to be authentic, uh, linking them into appropriate theories, bringing in, I think, the richness of philosophy. I mean, I think Martha Nussbaum's The Fragility of Goodness, where ironically, you know, our, our vulnerability is our strength, you know, Goethe has this famous phrase, it's that in being constrained that the master shows himself. But I think it's around uh, due uh, uh, critical focus on, on some of these areas here, trying to get it out into public domain. And increasingly, our universities want us to make an impact. So when they're looking at people for promotion, and I think this is a good thing, they want to know, oh, not only did you do some super bit of sophisticated research, mm -hmm. but did you get it out there yeah. and did it make a difference? 
uninsured, uh, your, your public yeah. involvement, those sort of things. Yeah. So I think I'm there is a sure responsibility role properly. here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's a that's a really a really comprehensive answer. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask. We've heard we've heard from from Kevin and Wendy about the experience of writing and writing with people um, and the creativity that they've that that they've both found. I wanted to ask about reading. Um, do you do you what 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 other sorts of stories do you read? What writers do you enjoy? Wendy, you talk about poetry quite a mm. lot. What which I I love to talk about. Can you can you say a bit about about what you read for for pleasure for inspiration? Well, I've always loved reading, always always, and sadly now I can't I can't even read my own book because I forget what's on yes. every page, so I can't follow the the story. So I can't read the types of books that I used to read. But uh, again, my mantra is there's always a way. So. I started writing and reading poetry. Yes. Because that's on one page, can be on one page in front of me. Yes. And I can follow it. I can write, I can write poems. But also I discovered the, the beauty of children's fiction again. Ah, yes. Um, the very books that I read to my daughters they now buy for me. Yes. So we, I relive and but read them in a totally different eye, with totally different eyes. And the, the imagery in children's books is just amazing. Yes. And it's, it's almost lost in, for children sometimes. <laughs> Wasted on them. All adults need to revisit children's books from from their childhood or from their children's Absolutely. childhood but also i um i have to read my book if you like every now and then just to keep track of what on earth i talked about sure. <laughs> and so i listen yeah. and i i can't retain what i'm hearing but i can pick up on certain things yes. that that I can talk about yes. so so I've just found another way of still enjoying that wonderful medium of yes of reading that's wonderful so poetry and children's fiction that's yeah wonderful. that's that's so interesting mm. Kevin can I ask you the same question yeah I wouldn't have any particular um writer or that that I would follow but my favorite books were books, real life story books. Yeah. Um, Paula Connell's book, The Rugby Player, was inspiring because I thought Paula Connell's book was going to be about this big hard man. <laughs> Paula Connell's book was all about his fears and vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I just said, good on you for doing that. Absolutely. I read Jim Stein's book. Um, he passed away from cancer. I read Joe Dolan's book and I, this this jockey in um in Australia, Kyle Sanderlands, he wound up living in the streets at 14 years of age, and he's probably his mid-50s now. He's one of the wealthiest and top DJs in Australia. But the biggest trouble for me with books is unless it's clear white paper and the font is minimum of 14, then I can't read it. Yes. And my favorite book of all was Joe Dolan, the singer. I was just mad about his I love his music 
and I have his book inside and I gave it to a friend of mine, he gave it back to me, I wanted to read it again and I can't. And if you say, well, hold up the magnifying glass in front of it and read it like that, the magnifying glass or the book or both will wind up in the fire. I think that's that's really interesting. The the practical, the because we we talk about the content of books a lot, don't we? And the themes and images, but actually the the physical, the practicality yeah. of I it. And... A bookshop, and I pick up a book that I think I like to read. The first thing I'll do is I'll flip through the pages, and if the font is too small, yeah. No, and if the color if the color of the paper is clear white and the font is fourteen plus, I'm happy. You're and, all right. Any any speech I give from myself. I, that's what I need. Yeah, yeah. That's what I need. Now, and that I think that picks up on what Wendy was saying earlier, which I was so struck by, but the way you use Twitter and emojis, and and I'm just I'm so I'm so interested in the fact that for both of you, as you say, Wendy, you have found new ways of communicating, of telling stories, of reading stories, and finding them. But it seems, Kevin, from what you're saying, that what's really important for you, what really resonates with you in what you read is again that sense of authenticity that we've been talking about, that sense that lived experience is, is I, really I, key. I just love it because I find that most people that write books, um, especially it's sports people and, yeah. and people I know, I feel when I'm reading the book, I have to hear their voice. I picture, I can, it's almost like they're reading it to me, if that makes sense. Yes. But, there's no point you giving me a book about some guy that I've never heard of or I don't know about. Um, I can't wait to read Wendy's book now. <laughs> That's I good. I, I know what she looks like. <laughs> so she's a real person now, so you can read yeah. her. Wendy, you wanted yeah. to say something just then. Don't give, don't give me a um, non-fiction book because I'll, I'll, I'll use it to stop the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy. Uh, it was interesting when I... Um, my book came out in America as well, yeah. and the American people allowed me to do my own audio version. Wow, okay. What was that well, like? Well, that was just amazing. But in England, I wasn't allowed to do my own voice voice reading because they they thought I wouldn't be capable. So the people that knew me knew I had dementia. They thought I wasn't capable. Yeah. But the American company that didn't know sure. my book was about dementia, they thought, yeah, let's have the yeah, real person. So, so, so again, that's, that's this what, what, what everyone has raised, what Danielle and Des talked about, assumptions, exactly. Out there. Yeah, yeah, this, this stigmatization. And so it seems as if, the the own voice narrative telling your own story authentically um and and being heard that 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 sense that that it's it's read and heard and understood does seem to be the way to challenge those stigmas and to to share that vulnerability um that that danielle has has mentioned i have one more question but it's unrelated really so i just want to see if anybody else has has final questions or comments that they'd like to make i'm conscious of time Liz, do you want to come in? I really just wanted to comment. Every every time we do one of these podcasts, we, we bring together experts from lots of different areas. And I always feel really nervous 
about how people will gel and if they will have shared experience. And every single time, just as Danielle said, it feels really powerful to have people from different disciplines and different experiences in the room talking together. And there's so, so much commonality when we do that. And even listening as a doctor, I was thinking about how important it is for physicians and trainees and clinicians of all kinds to hear about these stories. And, you know, it takes a huge amount of energy for Wendy and Kevin and Cloda to go and meet people. It's wonderful that they do. But thinking about ways where these stories can be shared. I mean, Wendy and Kevin, you're never going to be able to meet every clinician. Uh, exactly. Claire was saying. So how can we share these stories in really meaningful ways? And this has felt like a, a really very meaningful shared experience to me. Yeah. And I hope yeah. clinicians listening to it will really take away um, the stories and the experiences you've had. And also, you know, Des's literature. I mean, I bet you clinicians, yeah. clinicians will listen to this and will be writing, writing down things to read. <laughs> and for Danielle, that reminder about embodied experience, something yeah. we don't really talk about very much, I think, in clinical practice. But you've really made me think about, you know, there are so many perspectives on this that we need to think about in medical education and training. So thanks to everyone for, for participating. It's just been wonderful. Thank well, you. Elizabeth, I, I'm sure I speak for Wendy and myself. For a nominal fee, we'll try and talk, speak to as many clinicians. <laughs> <laughs> Good man. <laughs> I have to say, I've learned a really important phrase today. That Dad said, and I'm getting a schedule of pleasant activities. I, I don't have dementia, but I would very much like someone to create a <laughs> activities for me, particularly now during COVID 19. I think that's a great phrase. I'm going to bring it into my life. <laughs> I had one last question, if that's if that's okay, um, if people don't mind. One of the things that struck me, um, Des, in, in your you raised it a couple of times in in your presentation, and I know I know from from both Kevin and, and Wendy, um, that stories and 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 communication come in different forms. And Danielle was saying this as well. And I so I know that Des is involved in singing. I know that you're you're a choir man like myself. Um, and I I know Kevin and Wendy, you both you both bake. Um, can can you tell me how was that was that something that you did before? Are there other kind of creative forms that you that you that you enjoy that you find valuable? Um, I I've loved to bake all my life, and I think it goes back to my grandmother. She uh -huh. was a cook in Springfield Castle. There's a book on that, and it's on. It's it's a pretty much a magical tale. And to she taught me how to bake, and my mother was a good baker. But I just tell you a very quick true story and. It's okay to laugh at yourself every now and again. <laughs> I mean, so. absolutely beautiful apple tart. I mean, the pastry is only like yeah. that size, and I make one with cloves or without cloves. And I was at home one day, and I'm a, I'm very tidy in the kitchen, and I have to be on my own. If I didn't come in, I'd walk out. But I was making the apple tart then, and I put the apple tarts into the oven. I make three of them together. And I looked around. And it was just like you get your bag of flour and you would go like that. Oh, no. And whatever look I gave, the dishwasher was open and I had the cores of the apple put into the holders. That. <laughs> and I just said to myself, your son, the word begins with B and ends with X. <laughs> I'm not sure we're allowed that on a podcast. Oh, and I just, you know, I just I just thought for a second, look at the cut of the place, you have to clean this up. 
and I just went, you know what? It's okay, you dementia. <laughs> you know, and I, I just I, I just allow myself every now and again to have a laugh at myself. Yeah. You know, and, and I tell you what, Kevin, I'm terrible messy in the kitchen and I have no such excuse. There's just a dusting of flour on every surface I when I bake. As I go. But it's therapeutic. And yeah. It's therapeutic. Because my kids, it was so funny in Australia when we were all there, I put up on the app, I put up a photograph of an apple cart. Uh -huh. We have six children. There was a time where the six of them were in Australia with us. Within an hour, they were landed at the door. Because <laughs> <laughs> they miss it. They all know that I had one bake for them as well. So, and that's that's one of the things, isn't it, about about baking, about singing, about all the, the different forms of art and about writing, that it's a way of sharing with people. It's a way of connecting with people and really kind of getting right cozy in the middle of that that network of community and, and support that, that that Danielle was talking about. Wendy. Uh, yeah, I, I, I used to adore baking. Sadly, now I, I can't coordinate for baking. But I, I never dwell on my losses and I find new things. Yes. And the, my local village, I only moved here four years ago. And they know me as the camera lady. They don't know me as Wendy with dementia first and the camera lady second. They know me as the camera lady first because I post my photos every day on the village Facebook page. And it's only now that they all realize I have dementia. But they see me as the camera lady who takes yeah. wonderful photos, which I find lovely. Well, I was looking through your blog and, and there's, there are such beautiful photo, kind of photo essays and experiences there. And I really love the title of, of your blog, Wendy. I don't think we mentioned it yet. Which me am I today? And I just I think that really captures exactly what we've been talking about, you know, and then really kind of continuing to be yourself and to discover new new sides of yourself and new new angles of yourself. I just think that the positivity and optimism of that is 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 hugely important and really comes through from from both of you. And the the kind of the, the courage that both of you show and the energy still that you that you bring to your advocacy, that you bring to your creativity. It's just it's it's extremely inspiring. Um, but it's also really instructive. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of it's quite specifically instructive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap us up there if that's if that's all right with everybody. And just again to thank everybody so much for the energy and the generosity and the expertise that you've brought.